podcast. I'm Brandon, and this is the podcast aimed at the practical application of the Christian worldview. We're going to continue our series in Arminianism, and on this episode, we're going to look at what it means to be freed by grace, how the grace of God frees us to believe the gospel. So as we talked about a few episodes ago, um, humanity has fallen, sinful, we are totally depraved, so there's nothing good in and of ourselves. Um, we're not able to think or will or do anything good in and of ourselves, um, and that includes believing in Christ, that includes having faith. So we take that concept, that biblical concept, and then we tie that to the next concept we talked about, that God desires salvation of all people, they provided atonement for all people, um, we talked about in the last two episodes. And so we take those things and put them together. And so that's what we're going to talk about today is this idea of freed grace or freed will by grace. So God takes the initiative by calling people to repentance and believe the gospel. And by grace, he enables those who hear the gospel to respond to it positively. So we know unaided by grace, man cannot come to God. Um, in any way, shape, or form. Just like John 6.44 tells us, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. But thankfully, God in his mercy also promised us, if we look at John 12, starting in verse 27, Jesus says, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me for this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd stood there and heard it and said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus answered, This voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ must remain forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of the light. So here Christ is pleading with them to walk in the light while they have the light. They're not going to have it for much longer. So they need, they need to believe in Christ so they, become, so they become sons of God. We see in the beginning of John's gospel that he writes the true light in verse 9, chapter 1. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So we're not born again. We don't come to the light by our own will or by our own flesh, by our own strength, by our own power, anything of that nature. It is all by grace and only by grace that we become children of light and believe in Christ through faith. We repent, believe the gospel. It's the very power of the gospel that we can repent and believe. Paul tells us in Romans 1, verse 16, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, 
to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So we see that nobody comes to the Father on their own. It's only by the Father's drawing that we even come to Him, only by His grace and mercy that we can come to Him. In John 12, we see that Christ is drawing all men to Himself, commanding them to walk in the light, to believe in the light, to repent and believe the gospel before the light leaves. We see in John 1 that Christ is this light. He came to the world giving light to all. And Paul again tells us in Romans that the power of the gospel is salvation to all who believe, to Jew first and also to the Greek. So we see that the very gospel itself is the power of salvation for us. We're called to believe it. We're commanded to repent and believe the gospel when we're presented with it. The power of the Holy Spirit actually makes it possible for those who hear the gospel to believe it. Romans 10, starting in verse 5, says, For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Paul's actually referencing Deuteronomy 30, verse 12 there, which if we go to Deuteronomy 30, uh, starting verse 11, it says, For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, Who will ascend to heaven for us? Bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it. Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, Who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it. But the word is very near you, it is in your mouth and in your heart, so that you can do it. Paul's application of Deuteronomy 30 there um, implies or indicates an ability to actually obey God's words. His reference is, again, saying that the word is very near you, it's in your mouth and in your heart, so that you can do it. So what does Paul in Romans 10 go on to say that they can do? by that reference in Deuteronomy. What is it that's in their mouth, uh, or near their mouth, in their heart? What are these things that they have the ability um, to obey? Well, verse 9 in Romans 10 goes on to say, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So the word of faith that they proclaim, that Paul is talking about here, that he's indicated they have the ability to believe, um, is if they confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead, they will be saved. That's the thing Paul is telling them, that they have the ability to believe and obey those words of God that very word of faith that the apostles proclaimed to Jew and Gentile alike. So we see here the ability to believe the gospel message when you've heard it. The power of the gospel is the power unto salvation by the Holy Spirit, by the grace of God. So it leads Paul in Romans 10 um, to ask these uh, pertinent questions, starting verse 14. How then 
will they call on him who they have not believed? How are they to believe in him who they have not heard of? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But as Paul reminds us just one verse earlier, they have not all obeyed the gospel. So hearing the gospel, having it proclaimed over you, hearing somebody preach, one that's sent so that we can believe in Christ, that we can hear of the one that came on our behalf, that bled and died and was resurrected on our behalf. Hearing that gospel message doesn't necessitate faith because they have not all obeyed the gospel who have heard it. And so it's not an automatic, uh, you have faith when you hear the gospel, but hearing the gospel, hearing the word of Christ is a prerequisite to having faith. We can't come to God on our own without grace. It's a grace and mercy that he sends people, he sends preachers, sends people to proclaim the good news of his gospel. So we hear the gospel, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, we're enabled to believe that gospel. Paul goes on to say in Romans ten eighteen, But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have, for their voice has gone out to all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, All day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. So again, we see that they had heard the message of God. They had heard the word of Christ, but they did not all believe the gospel. They'd rejected it. So let's look at a few biblical examples of people that hear the word of God but reject it. If we look at John chapter 5, um, starting in verse, we'll start in verse 30. It says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. There's Jesus' words here in verse 34. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you. 
for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in my own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father, for there is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? So Jesus is speaking to a people that have the scriptures, they have the words of Moses, they have the words of the Father, and yet they reject Jesus when he comes into the world. They have the very scriptures that testify of his coming, testify of who he is, and the salvation that he brings, and yet they reject him. In Acts 7, Stephen says, and in verse 51, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. If we look at Nehemiah 9, um, we're not going to go through the entire chapter here, but um, it starts out with the people of Israel confessing their sin. Um, They're assembled, they're fasting, they're in sackcloth. They're confessing their sin to the Father. Uh, they're saying, Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all their blessings and praises. And they recount some of their history. And starting in verse 9, um, they say, And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt, and heard their cry at the Red Sea, performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants, and all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers, and you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. Because on, you know, talk about that he divided the sea before them, he saved them out of Egypt. Um, by a pillar of cloud, he led them by the day. By a pillar of fire, he led them by night. Came down from Sinai, spoke with them, gave them laws and statutes and commandments. He gave them bread from heaven. He gave them manna, water. He brought them through the wilderness and sustained them. And then in verse 16, Nehemiah writes, But they and our fathers acted presumptuously, and stiffened their neck, and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey, and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck, and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and you did not forsake them. Even when they made idols and golden, a golden calf, and they blasphemed against the Lord, he did not forsake them. Verse 20 says, You gave your good spirit to instruct them, did not withhold your manna from their mouth, gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness, and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, and their feet did not swell. You gave them kindness and peoples, and allotted to them every corner. So they took possession of the land of Sihon, king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. goes on to talk about the he blessed them, he multiplied them, he gave them many lands of the Canaanites, um, he gave them 
cities. They were able to capture fortified cities. Uh, they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in God's great goodness. Then looking at verse 26. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you and they committed great blasphemies. Therefore you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer and the time of their suffering they cried out to you and you heard them from heaven according to your great mercies. You gave them saviors who saved them from the, la- from the hand of their enemies. Nehemiah goes on to say that after they had rested, they did evil again and that God had warned them to turn back to turn back to his law. And again, they acted presumptuously. They were stiff-necked. They rejected God. And so for many years, uh, God bore with them and warned them by your spirit through the prophets. That's verse 30. Yet they would not give ear. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them. For you are a gracious and merciful God. So time and time again, you see God rescue his people, save them, provide for them. Then they stiffen their neck, return to evil, reject him. But because he is a God of great mercy and slow to anger and steadfast kindness, he continually returns them back to his law, back to his provision, back to his mercy, holds out his hand for them to continually return to him when they call out to him. So we see a people that had the word of God, had the promises of God, had the history of God's salvation on them and rescuing from Egypt. They listened to it, obeyed his commands for a time, captured fortified cities, captured the promised land, um, and then stiffened their neck and rejected him again. So this text shows us that um, God completes his purposes, he completes his actions um, in such a way that uh, allows for human rebellion and human freedom, um, that it doesn't thwart his plans. Our rebellion and our human choice doesn't thwart his plans, but it's part of his sovereign plan and how he governs the world, how he takes care of the world, how he has the world function. So I hope you've noticed during this podcast, I have specifically not used the term free will, but I've used the term freed will with a D on the end, because the concept of a freed will um, is, I think, what scripture teaches us and is the concept that I want to articulate through this podcast, that we don't have a just a autonomous free will where we choose and do whatever we want, whenever we want, but that by the grace of God, by his mercy, steadfast love, his being slow to anger, he frees our will through the power of the gospel, through the hearing of the words of Christ, to turn and believe, to repent and believe that very message. It's only by the power of the gospel, it's only by the power of the Holy Spirit that our will is freed in such a way that we can believe and repent. Many people think that um, if you hold to a freed will, they are somehow limiting God's free will. God is the only being that has a truly free will. God is omnipotent. He is sovereign. He has an ultimate and absolute free will. There is nothing constraining the will of the Father. Um, there is nothing that 
causes God to do certain things. Because of his power and authority, um, he can do anything he wants. And he's not constrained by any actions or wills or anything outside of himself and his own judgments. He is the only one with an absolute sovereign free will. And any will we have without grace, without the mercy of God, is subject to sin, is a slave to sin. Our wills are in slavery. They're in bondage. They're not free in any sense without the mercy and grace of the Father. And it's a completely unmerited freedom that we get from the Father by His grace. We don't do anything to merit it. There's nothing on our part that earns us any kind of favor with the Father. It is 100% provided um, solely by the love and kindness and mercy of our Father. So when we go out into the world, we proclaim a gospel message that has the power to salvation within it. That is the call we have as Christians, is to take that message, the power of God in the gospel, proclaim it to people, let the Holy Spirit work on their lives, free their wills so that they can be convicted of sin, convicted of righteousness. The light that came into the world will shine on their darkness, convict their hearts, and they will repent and believe in the Father through grace and mercy alone. We don't have any power to convict their spirits, to convict their hearts. Our sole purpose is to proclaim the good news of the gospel and let God and the Holy Spirit work in their lives. So that's the message we take to the world. Remind them that Christ is King, Christ is Lord, He is Savior of all, and through the power of the gospel, they can repent and believe as well. 